This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. So we're joined on this episode of Lexis by Dr. Gareth Carroll, who is a lecturer in linguistics at University of Birmingham and is the author of Jumping Sharks and Dropping Mics, Modern Idioms and Where They Come From, which was published in February of 2022, I think. So welcome, Gareth. Thanks very much for joining us. Super. Thanks for having me. It's such a lovely collection as well of, of little phrases and quirks of English to, to dive into. Great, thanks. Could you maybe sort of kick us off by explaining essentially what an idiom is and how it might sort of differ from things like metaphors and cliches or is it all kind of interrelated essentially? Yeah I mean the easy answer is yes they're definitely interrelated we're we're sort of really talking about sort of points on a spectrum rather than distinct categories so I guess metaphor to start with is, is probably one that a lot of people are familiar with lots of people will have encountered metaphor through literature probably have learned about it in English literature in the first instance and I think we tend to think of it as being quite a kind of creative literary thing but a metaphor is simply a comparison of two things two unrelated things so anytime you're sort of describing one thing as another you're sort of drawing on those properties so metaphors can be sort of very very novel very creative so I think sort of Shakespearean metaphors that people will be familiar with but they're also much more sort of everyday so in Romeo and Juliet we have something like Juliet is the sun but, you know, in everyday language, we talk about people having a sunny personality or being warm and that kind of thing. So mm. we, we sort of use those sorts of metaphors quite often. Clichés, I guess, are sort of the other end. Clichés are sort of common phrases that people might use, but that have a very literal meaning. So I guess sport is always a really good arena for clichés. There's lots of sort of clichés and truisms in sport. So one that occurs is something like, it's not over till it's over or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, keep going till the end, but it's, it just means exactly what it means. There's, there's, it's a literal, literal meaning. Game of two halves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those kind of things that, that, you know, there's not really any deeper meaning. You don't really have to sort of try and work them out. They, they, they simply exist as these kind of shared phrases. And more broadly, linguists talk about what's called formulaic language, which is this sort of mm. set of phrases. And idioms really sort of sit in the middle. They're, they're set phrases, but they have a figurative meaning. And so they're, they're sort of very fixed. They're lexically um, sort of non, non-changeable. So you can't change an idiom. You can't say kick the bucket, for example. You can't say kick the pail. You can't say boot the bucket. You know, it's a sort of fixed set of words. Mm. But we have this figurative meaning that is, is associated with it. And generally speaking, native speakers at least have a sort of very consistent knowledge of these idioms simply because we hear them all the time. We use them in everyday language. So I guess that's what I mean by sort of saying they're points on a spectrum. At yeah. one end, you've got the kind of the creative way of doing this with metaphor. The other end, you've got the very literal way of doing this. And in the middle, we've got this really sort of large set of idioms that, that we tend to use and, and expect people to understand. That's the key thing. You know, we, we throw them in all the time. And one of the things I've, I've had to do as a teacher is kind of train myself not to, because when you've got a lot of international students in particular, if you're using mm. kind of idioms, people don't know what you're talking about because they don't make any sense at face value so you have to be a little bit careful about these things yeah yeah and of course the book the book is all about idiom so can can you talk to us a little bit then about the process of investigating origins of idioms some of them have got all sorts of theories behind them you talked you mentioned there about kick the bucket which you talk about at length in the book how how do you work out what the real origin of an idiom is yeah, it's a really good question. And, and actually, this is one of the reasons that I focused on modern idioms in, in the book, because you're right, phrases like kick the bucket, spill the beans, you know, these sort of ones that have been in the language for centuries, 
who knows where they originally came from that we can find in some cases sort of a first usage so i think there's there's allusions to kick the bucket or something like bucket again in, in shakespeare but we don't really have a clear idea of where things like that that come from there are some very good idiom uh, websites idiom dictionaries a lot of uh, uh, sort of mainstream dictionaries have idioms and have some etymological information, but, but often these are sort of best guess. With the, the modern idioms, so that the book focuses on really idioms from the 20th and 21st century, we can just be much uh, more uh, sort of definite about the, the origins and the first uses of those. So if we find an idiom that came from a film, for example, we've got a very unequivocal first usage, and then we can track how that's then developed through the language, we can look at how it's been used in media articles, we can look at how it's then sort of been uh, adopted and, and maybe uh, sort of used in different contexts. So um, there's not really a sort of clear cut way of doing this. It's really just a case of investigating uh, if you can find sort of original printed uses, generally speaking, that's going to sort of imply that they were possibly in use in spoken language before. But if we can find sort of first written usage, then then great. Sometimes people will, will have clear, clear ideas about the, the origin stories. Kick the Bucket, you mentioned, is, is, is an interesting one. People sort of always, I think, assume that it's it's kind of got these illusions of sort of, sort of a hanged man kind of standing <laughs> on an upturned bucket and the bucket being kicked away. The problem with that and the problem that I've always sort of seen with that is I don't really see why you would stand on a bucket. You know, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me to do that. And, and part of the reason it's so um, impenetrable is bucket has an old dialect meaning of something like a wooden beam or a roof beam. Um, so the, actually the original meaning was if you had cattle or you wanted to sort of take your, your pig or your cow or whatever it might be out, out the back and probably not a cow thinking about it, maybe a pig, something that you could string up to a wooden beam easily you would then sort of slit its throat and, and, and kill it and it would kick against the, the bucket the beam in in as it was dying the problem is we don't have that meaning of the of the word bucket anymore so if we're trying to make sense of it we're mm. using almost the wrong toolkit we're trying to apply a modern meaning to what would have been an original dialect meaning and that's why they seem uh, so so difficult to understand um, and that's one that you know that, that's kind of my my best guess at that that's the one the explanation i found the most convincing but it may well not be true it, you know there's not any unequivocal evidence for that but the modern ones as i say you know we can much clearer on where they come from where they were first used and then how they sort of proliferated in the language after that it kind of makes bucket list more <laughs> unpleasant as a kind of term doesn't it absolutely and bucket list are they is related a, then yeah so bucket the idea is, is the idea of kicking the yeah. bucket a bucket list is a list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. It's uh, yeah, so very, very much related. That was one that's in the book, and I I was convinced was older than it was. There's a film called The Bucket List from I think around 2007, and and from what I can gather, that's the first time that that term was used. I was convinced it was in use before then, and that's why the film was called what it was. But I don't think it it was. Certainly, all of the the first written uses I can find of bucket list relate to that film. So that, that, that's a, a phrase that I think most people would know now, most people would use, but it's probably only about 15 years old. So it sounds like the process is very much one that is reliant on sort of modern technologies then. The idea of being able to track down in print, as you say, a, a first usage. So, so how important would you say technology was in helping with the research for the book? Would you, would you have been able to do it 20 or 30 years ago? Well, probably not. I think for two reasons. One, that lots of the sort of modern idioms um, sort of by definition have emerged from 
TV, film, internet, and, and certainly the internet ones, you know, they're, they're all sort of the, the turn of the millennium onward, really, because mm. that's when the internet took off. But, you know, more directly in terms of using technology, I think using the internet to be able to track down lots of sources, firstly, lots of different examples of things like dictionaries or, or websites or people who've kind of written articles about idioms that give you those different um, possible theories to give you different uses but also using things like language corpora so you know looking in these big databases of language that that help give us examples uh, two that I used in particular were the google books corpus so they, they have a what's called a kind of engrams viewer where you can really look in google books for the last few hundred years they've digitized lots and lots of books and look for kind of repeated uh, sequences of words so what are called engrams as in a, a sort of a sequence of x number of words and find really the first time that this was used or a point at which it sort of took off and you see a spike in usage of a particular phrase or, or something like that so that was really useful kind of getting at first usage and then being able to go and look at those original sources and figure out whether there was anything there that gave us a bit of info. But the other corpus that was really useful is one called the News on the Web, which is a, quite a modern corpus that basically downloads you know, thousands of news articles written in English from the internet every day. And it's constantly adding to, to this sort of big database of language and how it's used. And what you get from that is newspaper articles, but also sort of transcripts of either radio or, or television mm. where people might have used different different idioms. So you can then see lots of kind of nice, very up to date examples of how they use. So Jump the Shark was a good example. It's, it's part of the title of the book. Uh, and Jump the Shark means sort of the point where something kind of goes beyond the realms of plausibility. It's the point where things get stupid, really. And, and what we've got is lots of examples in the last four or five years relating to politics. So in the UK, relating to Brexit, relating to sort of other things that have happened. And in the US, specifically relating to when Trump got elected, lots of people sort of saying, you know, this has just gotten ridiculous. How are we electing, you know, Trump of all people? Politics has jumped the shark. Democracy has jumped the shark. The US has jumped the shark. So those kinds of examples that, that show that this is an idiom that has very much entered the language and is alive and well, and people are using it and expecting the people reading or, or watching to understand what they mean. That's kind of mm. the key point. They don't feel the need to explain what that means. They're just using it as a as a, a set phrase. It's so great to hear that you're that you're using corpora. I'm assuming that are freely available as well. Are they yeah. news on the web yeah. and the and the Google search? We've got quite a few listeners that are English language A level students uh, or undergrads. We some masters as well. But I know that I know from personal experience that access to kind of corpora yeah. tools that are freely available are sometimes tricky to to pin down. So it's great to hear about those two corpora news on the web and the Google Books ngram searches that people can access for free. Yeah, both, both free, both sort of big and um, you know databases that you can search for lots of different things in, and, and really easy to use as well I think so they're, they're, they're quite quite useful tools for any any number of things but especially this kind of research. So what makes for a successful idiom then? I mean you mentioned Jump the Shark do you want to just tell us a bit about you know where that came from why that sort of took off what, what it kind of relates to but also some of the others you mentioned about sort of other you know things other things to do with TV film literature online culture etc how, how do they kind of cross over into sort of everyday speech? Sure. So jump the shark, I think, is a really nice phrase. We've already said the meaning is sort of broadly uh, the, the point where something goes 
beyond the realms of, of plausibility or becomes you know silly or whatever you want to say and, and it originally relates to a tv show happy days which i think will probably split the audience all, all the people remember <laughs> happy days i certainly remember happy days growing up probably in repeats to be uh, to be honest but uh, younger hey. <laughs> <laughs> henry winkler <laughs> <laughs> Happy Days was an American sitcom about a sort of middle American family. And, and one of the most iconic, sort of famous characters was the Fonz. And his catchphrase, as Lisa just said, was a, you know, this really kind of cool guy who'd come in with a jacket and, and, and just steal attention. And he was brilliant. But the point is, Happy Days ran over quite a long time. And in, and in one series, it got to the point where they decided they were going to do an episode set in California. The entire family and all of the game characters traveled to California. And while they were there, the Fonz, this sort of really sort of cool um, central character, took part in a water skiing competition with a local sort of loudmouth. Uh, so they, they kind of said, right, well, let's let's have a water ski off to see who's, who's the coolest kind of thing. And in it, the Fonz literally water skied over a shark. He jumped over a cage. <laughs> And, and the story that, that I've read from this is part of the reason for this is Henry Winkler, the, the actor who played the Fonz, was a really keen water skier. So they kind of wanted to show off his water skiing skills. But it was it was sort of seen retrospectively as so out of keeping with what Happy Days normally did that mm. it was just this point where, you know, what are you doing? Why, why are you mm. doing this? And, and it was in the 80s that a, a guy in America, John Payne, who went on to become a, a radio personality, sort of started making a list of TV shows that what he called jumped the shark. So he said, you know, the, the point at which you realised this TV show had sort of run out of ideas mm. uh, and started doing just outlandish sort of storylines. So that, that's kind of where it comes from, is this idea that, you know, you, the writers have, have, have really started struggling, so they do something ridiculous. Now, to be fair to Happy Days, it, it ran for another five series or something like that afterwards. So it, it's not actually a very good description because it, it, it wasn't the point at which Happy Days started to decline at all. But that's how the meaning has come to be used. So things, as we've just said, you know, democracy has jumped the shark by kind of making just the most ridiculous decision it possibly can. It can't mm. get any in this so that's that's sort of the point that we should we all agree if you like all, all bets are off you know it's uh, who knows what what's going to happen next so that that's one good example i think of a phrase that that people really took to heart it describes something that that really needs describing in a very evocative way and i think there's lots of examples of idioms that, that sort of fit that bill the ones that make it the ones that that sort of enter the language i think kind of almost hit a hit a spot hit a, a sort of a need at that particular time so good examples I think would be things like first world problems or keyboard warrior so these are sort mm. of phrases that emerged from things like Twitter to mm. describe things that people were observing so this this idea that people were going on Twitter complaining because oh I couldn't get the latte I wanted this morning or whatever it is you know and people would say well you know they're first world problems let's let's not worry about it and it, and it, it really kind of marked something out same with keyboard warriors this idea that people aren't very nice when they talk to each other online and people who would otherwise be quite meek and mild and perfectly polite when they're behind the keyboard can, you know, be really aggressive and, and, and sort mm. of combative. So they, they, they almost sort of describe things that the language was begging for a, a, a term for something to describe. 
other great examples from TV. So have you tried turning it off and on again? You know, is a phrase that <laughs> first came from a TV sitcom, the IT crowd, but is now, I think, just universally used anytime something doesn't work. You know, our phones don't work or the computer crashes. You know, it's, it's that sort of first response. And it's it's sort of semi-literal. It's, it's, it's partly true. That's the first thing you try. But it's also a bit of an ironic, all right, if you tried to doing this. So again, it, it just taps into that, that sort of need or kind of something in modern life that needs describing in a certain way. And what's brilliant about things like that as well, of course, is that they is that they tap into wider socio-cultural sort of affiliations that then bond participants together, don't they? We, and, we've and we've talked about this before, is that you, you mentioned how, you know, idioms can have figurative meanings, but also literal meanings depend on, depending on where they sort of sit. And pragmatic assertions work so mm. beautifully for kind of maintaining social relationships and drawing groups together or blocking people out if they don't sort of get the references no absolutely and hit on a really important point there which is um part of the reason for using these, these idioms and more broadly these formulaic phrases is that we all speak the same language and you know i mean that in sort of the narrower sense than you know we all speak english but then within that we all have our own way of communicating with our social groups and, and idioms are sort of that but on a sort of a wider societal level so we all mm. use these shared expressions and it does it binds us together it it, it means that we're using uh, sort of phrases that you know will be recognized we're making references to things that we've probably all watched you know the amount of sort of tv catchphrases that are part of people's vocabularies as well you know and, and if you use let's say a, a catchphrase from faulty towers or dad's army or any number of sort of sitcoms you know you immediately sort of create an affinity with people who've, who've watched the same programs and, and have the same experiences so mm. they are really important as a, a, a sort of social hooks if you like and, and mm. as you say pragmatics is a huge part of this as to why we why we use them but they're also just quite efficient you know so the examples we've just talked about they they kind of express a quite complex message in a really straightforward way mm -hmm. so you know rather than scrambling and trying to come up with a description and run the risk that you might not explain something very well we just use a phrase that everyone sort of has heard before and and, and we sort of got a, a nice kind of encapsulated meaning for so idioms are great for that as well for mm -hmm. almost safely conveying a quite complex message so as you say there's uh, there's there's lots of different types of idiom they're kind of clustered under different headings in the book i don't know how long you're actually working on it but do you do you have any favorites that you could talk to us about ones that ones that particularly hold uh, some sort of sentimental value for you for some reason yeah so i mean there's there's about 60 odd examples in in the book and and i think almost without exception i, I learned something new about all of the phrases you know there's some that are very well known so groundhog day i think is a good example just because it's sort of one of the ones that originally started me thinking about this to me groundhog day is absolutely universal now as a sort of way of describing kind of deja vu or something like that and it's a really interesting one because whenever i use that example in fact i did quite recently with some of my own students i kind of give them idioms and ask them you know do you know the idioms you know what it mean means can you work out why um, and students now so sort of 20 year old university students assumed that the phrase came first and that the film was named after the phrase but actually groundhog day as as a phrase with that meaning mm. solely comes from the film that came out in 1993 which is about a man who lives the same day over and over again so that's a, a really wonderful bill murray <laughs> it's a brilliant film that's it if anyone has this film then please do go and watch it it's a great film but it's given us this again this this phrase that just sort of describes this kind of repetitive sort of feeling but so that's a really interesting one for that reason that it, it's, it's something that's always been part of my vocabulary I think because I've 
remember seeing the film when I was much younger, but but young, younger people now have the experience of knowing the phrase first before realizing it was a, a film. And mm. um, almost the sort of opposite experience is what I had with Netflix and chill. So this is mm. one that I had never heard before. Uh, and I probably about five, six years ago, I asked students about this and I asked them for examples of effectively what became modern idioms mm. um you know so phrases that they knew that they felt were sort of part of their vocabulary and one student gave me the example of netflix and chill and i looked completely uh, sort of nonplussed and said I, I i don't know what that means and the student sort of looked quite embarrassed and said really do you, do you want me to explain it and, and had to explain netflix and chill and again for people who don't know netflix and chill is sort of a bit of a euphemism it's it's sort of inviting someone over sort of uh, to watch Netflix and chill on the sofa, but actually it's sort of a bit of a cover for, well, we'll, we'll probably get up to other stuff while, whilst we're doing that. And I, I found quite a nice explanation of that as kind of the modern day, do you want to come up for coffee? So 20 yes. years, sort of bit of <laughs> for coffee and we'll see what else happens. So uh, it, it's quite a nice one because that that was, uh, again, new new to me. But once you've heard it, and, and certainly since mm. I've, I've known of the phrase, you, you do hear it, you hear it on TV shows, you, you hear it being used. So once you're aware of these things, then they are out there in the language. So two examples, I think, that were almost kind of the opposite experience to me, one that was very common to me, but students uh, not so much and, and the opposite way around. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the other one that I think interesting, simply because it was a, a surprise to me that it came from a film, is the phrase, know where the bodies are buried. So this is, again, one that I think is one that most people will know. It's quite metaphorical. If you've never heard it before, it's not hard to work out, but you know, if you know where the bodies are buried, you know kind of things you probably shouldn't. So that's exactly what it means. You know, if you are someone who knows where the bodies are buried, let's say in a, in a company or in, in, in mm. a political party, you know, then you kind of know mm. what the dirty secrets are. But that was originally a line from the film Citizen Kane. So a very, very famous film, very well-known film, a film that I've, I've seen several times, but I, I never clocked that that was a line and again when you do a bit of digging it it seems that that was a a bit of a common phrase in Hollywood in sort of the 30s Mm. at least you can find examples of it being used in Hollywood in the 30s and perhaps Orson Welles who then wrote the screenplay kind of drew on that as a as a phrase that was quite well known to him and Mm. used it um uh, for, for that reason. Lisa mentioned before about you know the idea that sort of the pragmatic side of idioms and how they kind of you know can be used to sort of bond people as a sort of shorthand maybe do you think you know you sort of mentioned as well that for for some people who maybe who don't have English as a first language idioms can be a bit confusing so do you, do you think there's there's maybe a sort of argument that idioms can be kind of exclusive as well as inclusive maybe to you know age groups generational groups even sort of ethnic cultural social groups uh, yeah definitely so I think you're right as a sort of language learner idioms can be a real point of difficulty for the simple reason that you know they, they don't make sense you know lots of these things sort of easy to make or, or, or sort of figure out the meaning at, at face value mm. um so i think we they, they can be exclusive from that point of view without necessarily people intending them to be because we do use them so naturally you know native speakers i, I think this is true of all languages but english seems to have a lot of idioms that we, we just use without thinking about it we use without realizing uh, that they're, they're sort of idiomatic so i don't think it's a sort of deliberate exclusion but you're, you're right that they can be and certainly you know if we think about the kind of cliches about sort of older people not understanding younger people well mm. part of the reason for that is new words for one thing and new slang but also phrases and idioms that you know might not be um, might not be particularly well known so I think it certainly can be one of these things that, that splits people and, and idioms come into the language so some of the ones we're talking about these modern 
examples have come into the language by definition. You know, they, they didn't exist in some cases, even sort of 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and other ones go out. So there's older examples. So spend a penny is a good example. That's uh, an idiom that lots of people will know. So it's a very British idiom. Um, spend a penny means to go to the toilet. And it's a phrase that I know because my grandparents used it all the time when I was growing up. And it's sort of a fairly, not exactly polite, but it's certainly not a rude way of saying I'm going to the toilet. Um, but it, it, it's it's one that definitely splits people. So again, when I ask students, have they heard this phrase? I can tell you that one or two out of a room of mm. 40 would have heard it. And I think within a generation, that's a phrase that probably won't exist in English anymore. And, and the reason it, it, it kind of resonates is, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you literally had to put a penny in to get into a public toilet. So there was yeah. a, a limit. <laughs> yeah. And you understood why that happened. It was before, before yeah. I was born. I've never had that experience, but I've, I've heard the phrase. That doesn't really resonate with people anymore. So, you know, why would the phrase sort of keep going? So th there's certainly examples of these things kind of coming in and, and going out. And, and I've been doing some research recently, actually, just kind of some online surveys, sending idioms out there, really, to people of different age groups and saying, yeah. you know, with these that'll be interesting to kind of build a picture of firstly whether our sort of knowledge of idioms increases over the lifespan anyway so literally as you have more experience with the language do you just build up a bigger stock of these things and are there particular phrases that have this sort of very clear um sort of skewing towards younger or older groups yeah. and i think certainly will be examples in, in both cases yeah so things like kind of you know as bent as a nine bob note and things like that will have no kind of like reference point for people will they I'd i actually make... don't know what that means i don't <laughs> know what like that a, means I, I guess it's like a sort of crooked in the sense of like shifty forged currency so like as dodgy as you know and okay. bent as in bent copper I suppose mm. it, you know, that links to things like semantic change where, you know, words change their meanings and people, you know, you, you wouldn't use that because it might be seen as like homophobic using the term like bent or something like that. Yeah, but you're yeah. right. So there's two reasons. Firstly, there's the, the, the change in the sort of most common meaning of, of, of yeah. bent. As you say, bob notes or any bob notes are no longer a thing. They haven't been for decades. So the, again, it's that sort of touch point. What, what do people relate to? Um, mm. And if you've never had that experience and you've never heard the phrase, then it, it simply doesn't resonate. So you're right, that that's one that will probably be on its way out. A good example, and I think this is, is good because it's always, I think, taught to learners of English is raining cats and dogs. Yeah. And I think that's a phrase that absolutely every, every native English speaker would know, would recognise. I don't know anyone who's ever used it. I've never used it. I can't remember the last time I heard anyone use it, but I think it's one that's sort of taught as an English idiom. Yeah. Um, whether that will therefore sort of stick around for that reason, I don't know, but it's it's certainly not common, but it's incredibly well known. So it's this sort of weird um, sort of mishmash between how frequently we actually hear these and, and how well we know them. They don't necessarily match up sort of in a particularly neat way. So with, with kind of things becoming, you know, more online, maybe more visual, perhaps, do you think that memes are kind of turning into sort of 21st century idioms? Definitely. Yeah, I think there's a real... Um, parallel between the two so memes you know these sort of ideas that that kind of spread online some make it some don't so some stick around some don't there's there's, there's so many i'm sure that have kind of popped up and, and disappeared almost instantly but the ones that stick around have the potential to then kind of go on to become idioms and i think that that's the point mm -hmm. is whether it's a, a meme or whether it's sort of a phrase if if they reach enough people and they resonate and they therefore keep being used then they have that potential to kind of take a step outside of their original context of use yeah. and become uh, something in their own right and i think that's what makes idioms idioms certainly in, in the sense i'm 
classifying them in the book is that they're not just used in that original context. They have gone beyond that in some way. So they've been sort of taken and adapted in some way. And right. you can say exactly the same with memes. They might sort of originally have a very specific reference, like a particular event happens and lots of people react to it. But then people take the same meme and they use it to react to a different event or they use it mm. to kind of more generally. And, and it's exactly the same principle, I think, is sort of using a message that people really like for whatever reason, whether it's the, the form or because it particularly sort of hits a, hits a note at the right time. And, and that just kind of taking root and, and, and being used. And again, it's hard to predict which ones will and which won't. But I think lots of these have the potential to, to become more bro- broadly used. But there's so many. I mean, that's the thing with mm. memes. There's so many out there that, you know. I was going to uh, ask, would you... Could you think of an example of one that you feel like has made it, one that sort of has made it into wide popular culture? Well, I, I guess sort of from the book, there's there's one that's, I don't know how well known it is, but Milkshake Duck, is this something mm. that you would have heard mm. of? So Milkshake yeah. Duck is kind of a, a sort of a Twitter meme, if you like. Someone sort of put out this idea of, of kind of a, a, a duck who was all cute and everyone liked it, and then he was revealed to be a racist. So there's this huge backlash against <laughs> but it kind of reflected this idea that lots of people get very famous on the internet very quickly and then because we can find lots of information online people then find these horrible backstories and and the internet turns against them very quickly so it was really a reflection of that so i think that that became very popular in in a few years ago it made it into various dictionaries so that's an idea of of one that i think was definitely taken to heart and there must be other examples there must be loads of examples of memes i think out there that that really kind of stuck around and and taken root thank you so much Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Lang in the News. In this part of the podcast, we like to pick out uh, interesting stories from the news that are circulating in the news over the last couple of weeks and months that have a little linguistic bent to them uh, and pick them apart for how they how they fit in maybe with your A-level English language syllabus or your undergrad work. I think we're going to kick off with a, a pair of stories that are kind of amusing, particularly when put side by side, about York Theatre Royal and about refugees in Hull. Yeah, so the first one is kind of a slightly ridiculous story where it's reported in the Yorkshire Post. This was back in end of March 2022, where apparently somebody went along to a play. It's a Shakespeare play. It's high As you like it. Yeah. Yeah, or in this case, as they didn't like it. Oh no, that's terrible. So in this story about the Shakespeare play, As You Like It, somebody complained, apparently, who'd been in the audience. They left after an hour of As You Like It because it had Yorkshire accents in it. Now, you might not need a geography lesson to know that York (laughs) Theatre Royal is in Yorkshire, North Yorkshire. I knew that. And it was actually a production of a Shakespeare play by a company called Northern Broadsides. That sounds a bit northern to me as well. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the literal remit is to do is to do classic plays in Yorkshire accents, right? Yeah. Pretty amusing on the surface, but but potentially kind of masks something slightly slightly less palatable and slightly less amusing, which is the idea that Shakespeare should perhaps only be performed in particular types of accents, or that Shakespeare is somehow attached to a particular type or set of accents and that Yorkshire somehow doesn't fit in. I think perhaps rightly the tone, the tone of the article itself was was one of sort of mild outrage that somebody had had 
been as daft as to walk out over over the accents. There was a sense that they were being ridiculous and there was a general tone of acknowledgement that this was a ridiculous thing to do. So that was kind of kind of heartening to hear. And and sits as a nice as a as a nice kind of companion piece to the second article that we'll link in the show notes as well about child refugees in the city of Hull learning the Hull accent and sayings to help Mm. integrate into the local community. Yeah, and that's again quite a kind of this one's quite a positive story, isn't it? In the sense that it's it shows that sort of importance of local dialect and accent as part of that identity. And the idea of you know people who may be new to the area who've sort of been you know moved there and have rooted from where they call home, finding a new sense of kind of belonging and identity in a place, and how important language is to that. Yeah, and it's it's part of a youth initiative. It says it says in the article that there's a fairly sizable grant from the national lottery that's helping to fund it as a project, uh, and not just about kind of accent and dialect and local sayings but teaching Mm. young people about the whole of Hull's culture and history Uh, and we assume where the kind of linguistic sayings sit in as part of that process. Yeah and it's all part of a a bigger picture isn't it you know language is a really important part of people's sense of history culture tradition and identity and it's you know it's something that's clearly a sort of positive initiative isn't it to help people feel like they're at home and and yeah to kind of grease the wheels wheels of integration as well yeah, there's a really nice quote from someone in the article that works on the project saying, if you're from somewhere like Iraq or Syria, learning English is not only a big step, but it's also essential to be able to communicate and then perhaps use that knowledge to help older family members. So there's this idea that young people are kind of a linchpin for, for family members that perhaps may find it more difficult to integrate because they don't have access to projects like this. And I think as well, it links to some other stories we, we thought would be worth kind of talking about as well, that... And it's, I think it's interesting here that it's a form of perhaps sort of non-standard English that is highlighted as being a real positive because there has been some some quite there's been some quite vitriolic coverage of accent and dialect and non-standard varieties in other news stories. So mm. um, a veritable smorgasbord yeah. of articles, <laughs> people getting very angry about ideas about standard and non-standard English. Yeah, and this seems to have come out of some work that people at University of Essex, including Amanda Cole, um, did. And they they published an article on the conversation.com website, which was really interesting. And they also sort of reproduced that in a blog on their site. And again, we'll, we'll share that through the through the show notes. It's a but, really excellent blog for, for listeners to go and have a look at, especially if you are teaching English language A-level or if you're a student yourself, uh, to go and check out. Mm. It's incredibly articulate and references really nicely some of the underpinning research that sits under the ideas that they're speaking about more broadly. Yeah, some nice stuff about kind of the history of accents and dialects in the UK as well. So that sort of change crossover stuff's really good. So, yeah, mm. that's that's worth a read to begin with and then you kind of see that it seems to have been sort of picked up by a range of different newspapers and online sources so it was covered I think in the mail online it was covered in the daily express I think the times and the telegraph may even have covered it around the same time as well but clearly not with the same sympathetic kind of linguistic and knowledgeable viewpoint that we got from Mm. the experts who actually wrote the article themselves yeah, um, so to, sort of just as a just as a point of comparison there for listeners who, who aren't familiar with the material, the title of the original blog that came from Dr. Cola X Essex and some of her colleagues as well is Ask or Axe how linguistic prejudice perpetuates inequality. And they kind of track the history of ask and axe 
in the first instance, but then they go on to talk about other aspects of kind of standard ideologies and non-standard ideologies as well. Uh, and as we said, in a very articulate and linguistically informed blog, mm. and then we have the kind of response articles and the and the response from the mail is fairly typical of what we tend to see in kind of common discourse particularly in the news which is extending an idea that is logical in a piece uh, from um an academic and and making a somewhat spurious connection or 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 extending it beyond the bounds of what is actually talked about in the blog itself as you just as you just said yeah, and I mean, you can get a sense of where they're coming from with the, the mail thing from just the headline, a typically kind of long daily mail headline. Now, prejudiced police say we can't even tell a child to talk proper. University specialists say there is no such thing as correct language or terminology. And it's that kind of sense that, you know, it's fairly typical of mail online headlines where it's now prejudiced police say we can't even, as if this is the latest outrage in a series of mm. outrages committed against proper English. This yeah, idea of the prejudiced police. Yes, exactly. Uh, so that alliterative phrase in there kind of it kind of works a bit like we were talking about with with Dr. Carroll a second ago with idiomatic language that kind of pragmatically indexes a certain idea. This mm. idea of the prejudice police is definitely a phrase or a turn of phrase that will that will index or point towards a very particular point of view. Uh, mm. In this particular case, one that that is in broader kind of sociocultural discourse around the idea of uh, policing language or policing behavior. It mm. used to be called political correctness, but is now often termed as sort of being woke or as cancel culture, mm. uh, particularly in places like the Mail Online. And they're sort of indexing where they stand on that debate through that kind of alliterative phrase, yeah. prejudice police. I mean, like you say, with, with kind of political correctness, things like that, you had, was it the old, the PC brigade? You even get a kind yep. of similar, you know, idea of, militarism or kind of you know police force you know yeah. imposing a way of thinking a, a correct way of thinking about language and in mm. this case a correct way of thinking about correct language it seems to be yeah on, I, yeah. yeah and ironically comes uh, you know takes us further away from the from the kind of actual meat of what the blog from the Essex linguists talked about which is this idea of a, a correctness ideology that sits mm. underneath a lot of language use or at yeah. least attitudes to language use that that warrants a closer look because it's problematic in lots of different ways and often manifests as actual discrimination against real people people in their real lives yeah it was picked up as well in the daily express so former conservative politician Anne Widdicombe had uh she she responded to it it wasn't a particularly long piece but it was it came in one of her comment pieces so she said according to academics at the University of Essex there is no such thing as correct language pronunciation or terminology instead they advocate what amounts to linguistic anarchy with anything acceptable such as pronouncing ask as acts and dismiss any standardization of usage as prejudice. Unfortunately for the students, employers who are looking for articulate applicants with a good command of the language will be perfectly happy to exhibit such prejudice and to choose someone who does not use like a dozen times in almost as many words. So that was her rant. Yeah, again, an interesting one. And I suspect is, is what lots of readers themselves would be thinking the idea that of course 
good language exists, why wouldn't we want to teach it? Of course, correct language exists. Why wouldn't we want to teach it? And this is the exact ideology that the blog from the Essex linguists is trying to kind of unpick a little bit. Mm. Uh, I don't think that they... I don't think that they're suggesting that a standard doesn't exist, but what they do want to do is interrogate where the idea of a standard comes from and consider the ways in which upholding it and insisting on it in various different contexts can lead to problematic behaviours. And not for everyone, but for very specific social groups. It's kind of interesting to see how that sort of gets reduced to a very simple sort of binary about, you know, either there's a right and wrong or anything goes. Um, Yeah, and I mean, this idea of linguistic anarchy is a really interesting one because it's that's pretty out there as a suggestion I don't know what linguistic anarchy looks like exactly but there's but there's this suggestion of moral outrage kind of implied through the phrase linguistic anarchy the idea that if we're not using standard English 100% of the time then all bets are off Um, yeah there's you know, just no world, control, no standards. The world will collapse in a in a in a crazy linguistic soup. There's a similar kind of angle came in when Vanessa Feltz interviewed Amanda Cole about the story, and she was featured on Vanessa Feltz's BBC Radio London program. I listened to the interview, and I think you know Amanda Cole did a great job of arguing the case and again <laughs> against what sounded like a rather kind of aggressive and, dare I say, ignorant interviewer who wouldn't really stand for this idea that there, there is such a thing as you know, non-standard English that, that could be valued. It's, you know, treated it very much as if this was kind of incorrect English and even went to, you know, the extent of, of picking up Amanda Cole on saying uh, speak natural rather than speak naturally. So using, you know, what some people talk about as a, as a flat adverb rather than the L-Y adverb. And Amanda Cole made a really good point in this. And again, we'll link to the interview itself, if that's still online, where she said, you know, the, the, it's not about um, being right or wrong. It's about using, using language that's kind of natural to you. And sometimes picking up people on so-called errors just, you know, stops them actually speaking at all. You don't want people to kind of feel insecure about their language and to feel like lacking in confidence. So actually... Mm some of this sort of pedantry about, you know, what might be seen as like errors in language can can actually just be a form of language policing in its own right to stop people actually speaking at all. We can, if we wanted to, kind of dig into what it is that Vanessa Feltz believes that she is kind of supporting Mm. and what she's kind of fighting against. And again, it comes back to this idea, I think, of this prejudice police idea that Vanessa Feltz in threatening the face of an academic who's talking about language. Essentially, what she's doing is asserting a position that she thinks will probably appeal to the majority of her listeners. And and she was probably right to make that assumption is that her listeners mm. will be like yeah Vanessa go on you give it to those university educated those linguists bosses. how dare they yeah. how <laughs> dare they come in and tell us that you know there's no such thing as correct language uh, because to their mind and to this folk linguistic idea uh, there is a correct version and there are incorrect versions mm. and of course what's what's so unfortunate is that when when you get down to the binary as you said this idea of right and wrong is that it really draws away from the idea that we want to question the binary um, right. in the first place. And that actually doing that is good for everybody. Yeah, um, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that the world would be a better place if people felt like they could say what 
could speak in non-standard variants even in places yeah. like a national radio show and of course the ideas that you know it's linguistic anarchy if we don't just don't stand up in no, it's not like this where yeah. everybody understood what dr cole meant when she said yes, exactly. natural there's nobody yeah. that didn't understand that uh, and yet just choosing to correct her guest in that instance does something more than just the correction it's about trying to sort of impose a particular view of language to, to sort of hold the line, if you like, against, you know, the experts with their, their so-called knowledge who've actually studied the language from making these points that, that make people think a bit more about it and actually challenge that kind of binary. And there was some interesting stuff around it. I mean, one of the things that was 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 picked up in lots of the articles about accents, and we've, we've talked about this before in the way in which Alex Scott was challenged by Digby Jones back in the summer of 21, how Pretty yeah. Patel has been criticised for the way in which she pronounces ing, for example. You know, that particular feature, again, came up in a number of the articles around this. So, for example, I think Vanessa Feltz said, well, you know, surely we should be pronouncing ing correctly with the g. You know, and as we said before, there is there is no g in most people's pronunciation of you know, walking, where's the G? It's a mm sound. So that velar nasal sound, I think, isn't it? Mm. You don't pronounce the G unless you're from Birmingham, you know, where you might pronounce singer the same way you pronounce finger. But the kind of the point there is it's it's about just a different, it's a variation, isn't it? It's a variation in sound. There is no way in which that's correct or incorrect. There are different ways of pronouncing that. And you don't pronounce things as they're spelled. I mean, this was, again, an argument Vanessa Feltz made was, you know, why can't we pronounce them as they're supposed to be pronounced, you know, as they're spelt? Mm. And it's nonsense, isn't it? Because you don't yeah. pronounce through with a G-H sounded guh at the end, do you? You know, no, lots indeed. of the ways in which our language is spelt, there's no relation to how. No, you know, and that's another... That's another example of where this conflation of writing and speech, you know, Mm. muddies the waters somewhat. So you've got these ideas, you know, these really, really entrenched social ideas about correctness that are ideologically driven, but do exist in quite tangible senses for lots of people. Uh, So there's that. But then we've also got this conflation of speech and writing that sits on top of it and, and muddies the picture even further. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be, and it would be you know we'd we'd be here potentially laughing about it except that it has real world tangible outcomes mm. for some so one of the other kind of accent bits that, that that's mm. been floated around social media that a lot of linguists picked up on is this is this poor woman elena anderson who posted up on twitter a job rejection that specifically referred to her strong welsh accent as one of the reasons that she wasn't given the job and this is a really great example of how you know what can feel like rather abstract discussions about you know notions of ideological correctness or whatever else Mm -hmm. you know just don't matter when what what it comes down to the real tangible outcome is that somebody doesn't get a job because of because of their accent yeah people feeling it's okay to actually be prejudiced about these things because they're sort of defending a position that they're, you know they're right and someone else is wrong is what it kind of boils down to it's isn't a it? re- yeah it's a really okay interesting accent. one 
not least because lots of the responses to Ellie's tweet was that she should she should get legal counsel and that yes. there was a that there, there's a genuine legal case for her going back to the employer and saying that this that this is legally not okay to do uh, and actually quite a lot of a lot of offers from lawyers saying mm. um, happy to happy to pick this up for you I don't know if it went anywhere but but it does feel on it and I don't know if you agree with me on this Dan that we're moving one step closer towards kind of legislating on accent discrimination as mm. as a non-acceptable form a remaining form of uh, discrimination uh, in the UK. Yeah and I think the linguist Don Watt who's at the University of York added something about that saying it's you know it's something that is under discussion I think and certainly it's something that it appears to have been introduced in France. I don't know if it's got through the sort of various sort of legal bodies there, but there was going to be a law introduced against what they called something like la glottophobie, so kind of accent prejudice, accent. And yeah, I mean, it's it's something that seems to be, you know, common to, to, to lots of languages, that sort of basically kind of regional and social and and ethnic prejudice against certain certain accents. But there's another dimension to it as well, isn't there? Which is that you know when it's when it's around accent, people uh, seem to be you know even people who can be quite sort of staunch defenders of written standard English say, well, I'm all in favour of accents. You know, I, I love the rich variety of accents, but it's when it comes down to things like grammar and spelling that they really get well and there's certainly been some sort of examples of that too and I think we'll we'll sort of talk a bit bit more about a report into how Ofsted the school inspectorate deal with that in a in a future episode and have a look at a paper that's been produced about that as always you'll be able to find links to all of the text that we've talked about in today's episode in the show notes along with a couple of extras including a nice big piece in the times in march that was all about different types of accent yeah and we'll include a link to gareth's book in there as well and we'll be back in a week or so with a new episode where we're interviewing some members of the oxford english dictionary team 